brain has virtually unlimited capacity because the, the number of potential connections between every brain cell is huge. So we do have this huge potential, but the secret to doing it is stimulating the cerebellum in such a way that plasticity multiplies and you create more exciting circuits. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. I was at a party in Venice last night and I ran into a fellow podcaster, Jordan, from the Balance Blonde podcast. And she was saying, dude, your shows are so long. How do you pay attention for three hours and stay engaged in the conversation? And I shared with her my secret weapon, which is the coconut matcha nootropic latte from choosecandor.com. This is a blend of coconut milk, MCT, and matcha green tea. Now, matcha green tea has L-theanine and caffeine. And these are molecules that pair really well together so that you have this alert focus, but you don't get too hyped and not be able to kind of keep your shit together like you would if you drank too much coffee. So this is a really great product. It's keto-friendly. Almost all the carbs in it are prebiotic fiber. And I just take this throughout the day. Like I'll have my coffee in the morning, but I like the matcha latte during the day because it's not going to keep me up at, at night. So this is a really awesome product. It really works to improve your mental performance and focus, and it's totally natural. Unlike some of the other things I take to focus, which are cool and harmless, but a lot of people don't want to take a smart drug and you know something that you have to order using Bitcoin from India and some of the other things that I take that I wouldn't necessarily recommend at large to the listeners of this show, but I can recommend choosecandor.com with complete confidence. It's safe, it's natural, it's completely amazing stuff. So that's choosecandor.com. The uh, code is lifestylist and the discount is 10%. Choosecandor.com. You know what's really embarrassing? It's really embarrassing when you don't get enough sleep and then you can't remember anybody's name and you forget why you walked in a room or you run a red light and get a ticket or you can't focus on a paper that you're supposed to deliver or a project that you're working on. That's embarrassing. You know what's even more embarrassing? Realizing that the reason your sleep sucks is because you're being exposed to blue light at night and then having to wear really ugly, lame glasses out to protect your melatonin. I'm talking about the whole phenomenon of blocking blue light. You guys have probably heard of it if you listen to this show and other shows about health. It's crucial to preserve your melatonin and ultimately preserve your sleep and your health by blocking all blue light after dark. Pretend like you're a caveman or cavewoman, as the case may be, and all you can see at night is the color of fire, which is kind of red and amber, right? Well, we can't make the world change, but we can change what covers our eyes, and that's why I love my Raw Optics blue blocking glasses. You can check them out at rawoptics.com. They have glasses that not only block all the gnarly blue light at night, but also some that you wear in the daytime when you're working on a computer or just underneath some really heinous fluorescent or LED lights at your job or wherever you happen to be hanging out where there's super crap junk lighting. So go to rawoptics.com. That's spelled R-A, rawoptics.com. Save 10% with the code LIFESTYLIST. That's rawoptics.com. 
You've just dropped into another Lifestylist Podcast Vortex without a parachute, my friend. Today's guest is Mr. Winford Dorr. He's the founder and CEO of Zing Performance. They're a brain development program conducting breakthrough research to address the root cause of reading issues and other learning difficulties. He's also the husband of a very popular recent guest by the name of Ninka Bernadette Maritzen. I caught up with Winford in London to discuss the following topics. How just about every problem we face begins in the brain. Biohacking breakthroughs discovered by Zing Performance. How we can help both autistic and aging populations by leveraging new information about how the brain develops. Winford's personal experience as a parent of a child with learning disabilities. What we're not taught about the cerebellum in school and why what Winford has learned can transform lives and the mysteries that we've yet to uncover. How Winford used NASA's equipment to learn more about brain development. The benefits of repairing your cerebellum that anybody can benefit from. The transformative research being done using neurofeedback at Peak Brain Institute. How confusion and misunderstanding around ADD, ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning abilities hold back and hurt so many kids, and the problem with labeling them in the first place. The relationship between alcohol and the cerebellum. How our cerebellum affects our experience of life for better or for worse. How brain development can make you a better lover. Good news for anyone who's experienced significant trauma. What the Zing Performance Program looks like and how long it will take you to see results by kickstarting your cerebellum. And finally, Winford's unique brand of spirituality. Now, I've been using this program for a few weeks. You're meant to do it a couple times a day for 10 minutes a day. And I think I'm about every other day, once a day. But uh, I noticed that when I do Zing Performance training, which is an app essentially that you put on your computer and your phone, etc., that uh, it does clear up brain fog quite a bit. So after having a recent scan of my brain by Dr. Daniel Amen, who uh, actually Winford introduced me to, uh, and that will also be, of course, another future episode with Dr. Amen, uh, in that brain scan, I showed very low activity. In fact, I think Dr. Amen said that I have a very sleepy cerebellum. So after getting that information and doing this interview, I'm very intrigued and enthusiastic about using Zing Performance to up-level my brain in general. If you guys want to do the same thing, and I'm guessing you probably will, you're going to get $200 off the program if you want to check it out. Here's the URL. Go to lukestory.zingperformance.com. That's lukestory.zingperformance.com. At that landing page, you're going to get 200 bucks off. All right, before we jump into this interview with Winford, I'd love to invite you to join me this Friday for a bonus Q&A solo show talking about cancer cures, doing a 5G EMF update, a lot of questions coming in about that one, and my next career moves for 2020. The next Tuesday, we'll be back with Red Pilled, Breaking Free from the Matrix with Carrie Ann Moss, who you might know as Trinity from the Matrix movie. So there's a lot of great stuff going on here. I'm really excited about the holiday season and wrapping up 2019. I'm about to head down to Soltara Healing Center in Costa Rica for an ayahuasca retreat. And I will, of course, be doing tons of live streaming from down there. I mean, not in ceremony, obviously, because that would ruin everything. But I'll be documenting the experience and, of course, turning that also into a podcast and some videos that will bust out in 2020. So thank you so much for joining me and our guest, Winford Dorr, today. Enjoy the show. Winford, welcome to the Lifestylist Podcast. Thank you, Luke. Great to be here. Me too, man. It's, it's uh, sort of fortuitous how we ended up coming yeah. to meet. 
through the interweb, found yeah. your work, you found my work. And uh, luckily we're able to connect here yeah. um, through, you know, the conference that I've been participating in. And uh, I'm really excited to start talking to you because uh, like, I think you've discovered, I think that most problems we face are really centered in the brain. Uh, absolutely. We, we <laughs> yeah. look at everything peripheral, except by what really is controlling just about everything we are, everything we do. Yeah. So that's what we're going to talk about, which right. is amazing. And, you know, I, you know, I just took a stack of nootropics and smart drugs up in my room. And while we're preparing for this, I'm like, I bet if we could just fix our brains, half of us wouldn't need to take all that shit. So I'm excited to talk about um, your biohacking breakthrough, Zing Performance. You know, most of us try to solve our problems with supplements and therapy and yeah. biohacks and self-help and all of this with our, our, our neuro neurological stress, mood swings, obsessions, addictions, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So what's the most surprising problem that brain development addresses? Well, at the extreme end, if you look at, say, autism, you've got there the combination of so many deficits. So that to, to be able to help someone with autistic symptoms really gives huge hope for most of us because most of us have got skill limitations in one or two or three areas. But when you can tackle tackle someone that's got a very broad range. So that's number one. Equal with that is the fact that we've been doing some research with the elderly, those that are in decline, those whose skills that they did have are now fading, be it balance, be it confidence, be it, be it memory, be it reading skills. So the, the ability to, 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 to look at those two kind of extreme groups where previously I thought... I couldn't do anything. Now we're discovering we can. So those are the, the two surprising areas for me. And how did you get into this? You know, tell us about your daughter and mm. that whole experience that you know, first drove your passion to start doing this research. My daughter, the oldest of four, went to good schools, had great teachers, but didn't learn. She worked hard, but didn't learn. So it wasn't long before her younger siblings were going ahead of her and you can imagine her self-esteem was just going down and down and down and down the teachers were were, were distraught the parents <laughs> the parents were distraught and so on and she went through school life not learning anything and then in her late teens she started to become very depressed that depression led to an attempt on her life and all the experts that we'd met had said things like she's got to learn to live with it in other words we can't do every, anything They'd given her the medication, they'd given her interventions, extra teaching, nothing was working. Well, at that time, I'd, I was running some pretty big businesses, which I'd started, so I sold them and threw all of my money, all my time and resource at finding out why Susie couldn't learn. And it's just been the most amazing journey ever since. How long ago was that? That was 20 years ago. Really? Yeah, so I spent 20 years researching uh, this and so I, I think I'm probably ahead of anybody in the world. In I certainly don't know of anyone that's got more advanced uh, studies and programs to transform the cerebellum. So we're we're in a, we're in an exciting place. Determination is that we want to reach a million people and do research on a million. So you've helped fifty thousand people so far yeah. in the past twenty years. How did you first start developing the awareness that it was rooted in the cerebellum? Because out of all the neurofeedback and everything that I've done. 
brain related. I've never heard one time anyone mention the cerebellum. I, know. I didn't even know it's like a useful part of the brain. I, I remember it from, you know, I don't know what type of science class in school, yeah. but you know, I'm aware that it's a part of the brain. I don't know what it does. We hear about the amygdala. We hear about yeah. the prefrontal cortex. Yeah. We hear about the pineal gland, et cetera, et cetera. Um, even the, the corpus colostrum, what's it called? Colossum? Corpus colostrum, yes. Corp- yeah. I always think of colostrum, this no. great supplement that I take. But, um, you know, we hear about all those, but the cerebellum is like, what? What does that have to do with anything? So well, what I, led you to first look at that in terms well, of the brain? Well, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're looking for solutions. I'd got a daughter that didn't want to live. I had to find a solution fast. So my focus was was extreme, as you can imagine. So I was talking to any professor, any academic, any medic that would talk to me on the subject. And I, I, I found a book in, in uh, Hong Kong airport and... I read it on the plane on the way home and that pointed me in a direction. And very quickly, I was in touch with two professors, one in the UK who's been my mentor for the last 20 years, Professor Rod Nicholson. And he, he pointed me towards a professor at Harvard Medical School who, who has been and still is obsessed with the cerebellum. And I started getting facts like the cerebellum is only 10% of the brain but it's more than 50% of the brain cells in the brain. It's really, really important. And yet when people do MRI scans and so on, they often miss off the cerebellum. So it's, it really is the poor relation of, uh, Daniel Amon called it the uh, Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so when you, when you start to look at what the cerebellum is capable of, you know, I am shocked that every every university doesn't yet have a professor that's focusing on this because the human potential that's locked in there, that's never discovered, is going to change the world. And it's certainly going to change people that have got learning issues and performance issues and stress issues and so on. Well, I think when it comes to psychiatric health, we really, most of the time, really look at neurotransmitters, hormones, developmental trauma, these kind of things. But again, not heard anyone address the yeah. cerebellum as the root of the problem. So what role does the cerebellum actually have in our brain? Like, let's just start at the very basic fundamental understanding. The, the cerebellum is the, is the master coordinator of the brain. It's the prime link between brain and body. So all of the functions that happen in the brain that have any impact on any of our body organs, not just our motor skills, our movement and balance, but, uh, but our visual input, our auditory input and output and our speech and so on. It's the bit that creates automaticity. It's a bit that creates skills. So if the cerebellum is doing its job properly, then we are going to be skilled at all of the things we need to do. They're going to be automatic, they're going to be effortless, and we're going to be confident. Wherever there is a, a lack in confidence, in performance, in input or output, like reading skills or listening skills, the cerebellum is involved. Now, what's not been understood is how you can change the cerebellum. You know, to quote Daniel Amen again, he, he, he's, he said he's been looking at my work for 15 years, and he, he told me recently, he said, I, I don't know of any other intervention that changes the blood flow in the cerebellum other than what you're doing. And he was including in that um, as, um, uh, prescribed drugs as well. Wow. So when you've got something so important and we've found a way of changing it, you know, I just want to share this with the world. I've not patented my ideas because 
it's too important to try and restrict it. This could transform the lives of so many. And, and particularly, as you say, those with psychiatric conditions. At the moment, they're limited, their, their performance is curtailed, and the cerebellum is responsible. And how does the cerebellum get impaired in the first place? Is that due to psychological trauma, falling on your head, jumping off a cliff on your bike or whatever? I know when I was a kid, I banged my head on everything, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I ever had an official... And look at you now. Yeah, right. <laughs> 12 podcasts in two days. Um, <laughs> haven't missed a beat. Although I did miss one yesterday, uh, technologically speaking. So, you know... What, what's going wrong? Is it uh, that we're, you know, being fed formula or the, the vaccines or, you know, is it exogenous inputs? That, that research that is, is, still, is, is still to be done. You know, my, my approach is I don't look for what has gone wrong. I, I'm just seeing countless people with issues that we can transform. So if you take autism that we touched on already, I don't get into the arguments about why they are where they are. I'm saying... What I see is not the disease. I am seeing a whole range of skill deficits that we can address. So those with, with autism or Asperger's or generally on the spectrum, you find a whole range of skills. For some, it's the, the lack of ability to make friends, to read body language and, and so on. Lack of ability to make eye contact. For some, it's lack of ability to read or to concentrate or to be coordinated physically. They're all skills. So whilst... The world has been focusing totally on it being a disease and assuming it's some deep and complicated thing that can't be addressed. What I see is a range of skills that can be transformed. So to me, it's that exciting. Interesting. So I, I think that's a good point of view that it doesn't really... I think why I go to like, well, what's the root cause is that if we can have an intervention early on and maybe avoid some of the trauma or avoid some of the negative inputs, but... Yeah. It sounds like it could be any any number of things, and it's broad-reaching. So the fact is, here we are. We have this condition that's widespread. Let's just look at what the solution is and stay solution-oriented yeah, rather exactly. than trying to go backward in time and fix something that, I mean, prevent something that might be unpreventable in many cases, yeah. right? You you can't control the the brain's environment even, even before birth, you know what I mean? So who what, knows what kind of negative energies or anything sure. that that... that you know, the embryo, the fetus has been exposed to and as a kid. So let's just move into the solution. Well, well what, what I would say on that point, Luke, is that there's an awful lot of correlation between um, trauma in pregnancy, trauma at time of birth, and those that show up with deficits later on. There's significant correlation between those who bypass the crawling phase and showing up as learning deficits later on. So there's a lot happening there, but I'm always cautious about saying that because very often mum will then start to have guilt that she may have contributed to it. I really don't think that is the case from all the evidence I've seen. It needs a lot of work. Uh, and a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Roy Rutherford, is actually writing a book right now about how to avoid these issues, things you can do in pregnancy, things to avoid, to make sure you maximize the chance of having a child. So there's work going on, not enough, but it's starting. Right. And so you'll just leave it up to some other people to make that their mission. You're about fixing what's broken. <laughs> yeah, there are millions out there. I see them. Right. I, I can't walk down the street without seeing people that I know I could transform. I, I own a school in England and I, I keep on seeing children that I know could perform at a much higher level if these interventions that we've now got developed for the cerebellum could be introduced. 
What was the first breakthrough you had in terms of helping your daughter, assuming that you did? Is she alive and well? And she is alive a and functional well. adult at this point. She is alive and well. I wish I could get, could have got to her much younger before she went through school. But yes, she's alive and well. She's an amazing human being. She's overcome so much. The first breakthrough I got. Susie, as a child, was she got locked in her own world. She was kind of shy and she wasn't particularly hyperactive, but her ability to communicate was so impaired, she didn't join in any conversation. And the first thing I noticed was, was she was joining in a conversation. It was a round table, just like we're at now, with about eight doctors. And she was joining in conversations about three months after we started the intervention. And I was flab- I stopped the conversation to... I, I couldn't believe this was happening. So that was the first thing I noticed. Then we noticed she was starting to read and now she buys loads of magazines and she writes and she runs her own small business. So I, there was a whole sequence of events. And what happens in this is folk with a, with families with a problem with a child, you tend to focus on the main thing. But underneath, there's normally a whole load of other skill deficits that are equally impacting their life. But you tend to focus on the one thing. So in America, you get the diagnosis of ADHD. In Britain, it tends to be more dyslexic because of reading issues and so on. So there's, there's lots of um, uh, differences country-wise. But for, for Susie, it was her reading was my big concern, but that's what, not what I noticed first. And how did you first start to implement tools that helped revive and repair her cerebellum once you had done some research and discovered that that might in fact be the root of her troubles like you know what did your modality look like when you first when it first started <laughs> well, working what exactly was she doing well you know? we we went we went mad we just we didn't have time for peer-reviewed research i'd got to save her life i was scared of the next phone call that i was going to get constantly so we did some mad stuff we heard that Na- that nasa had been developing some some uh, equipment to to find out why astronauts were behaving in a strange way when they leave the earth's gravitational pull so i bought that equipment and what i discovered was that we using that equipment we could identify the neurological conditions that would give rise to poor reading and poor concentration. And I, I don't know how deep you want to go into the science, but it led us to some really exciting oh, stuff it. about the vestibular system, the balance organ. When the balance organ is working well, the cerebellum, the brain-body coordination, works well. And if you keep it working well, it ends up to permanent better development. So we were using this balance equipment that NASA had developed. And uh, I, I've seen in various places that when astronauts leave the Earth's gravitational pull, they they write back backwards and upside down, and all sorts of things go on. And it's exactly what dyslexic people do all of the time. So I I started use equipment like that. We, then we bought ocular motor testing to find out what eye tracking was 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 what eye tracking uh, skills were like. And we discovered that. Oh, before I forget, sorry to interrupt. But are we going to do the eye tracking thing with me today? In between? I haven't brought it with me. Oh, okay. That's fine. That's fine. But we can do it remotely, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I, cool. I can, I can get it to you. Yes. I remember you mentioning that before and I was like, ooh, I want to see what's up with my cerebellum. Anyway, carry well, on. Well, so then we discovered, we got this eye, eye tracking equipment. We discovered that well over 90% of adults and children that struggle with reading have poor eye tracking skills. So all of this, all of these theories about them having all sorts of problems with phonics and not being intelligent and maybe being lazy 
certainly been totally misunderstood. They were all out of the window all of a sudden because we identified a skill that nailed it for virtually every child we've ever come across that struggled with reading. So that was the first thing. We started doing neurological tests, lots of them, so that we could pinpoint what's happening in the brain. So you know, all these folk, that cynical people that say that ADHD is just a fad and bad parenting and all that, that's, I'm afraid, totally wrong. We were able to say, no, there's neurological measures that we can take that positively identify positively identify when someone is going to have a condition like ADHD. Interesting. When you talk about the vestibular system and the sense of balance, the thing that popped into my mind was, um, and I'm sorry, listeners, because I talk about this in every episode, but it was was a really horrible time in my life. I had um, over the last three years, I was unknowingly living under three or two giant cell towers. Wow. And I'm super EMF sensitive and just intellectually EMF aware. It's something I study a lot. I talk to the world's foremost experts on the topic. And one of the main symptoms I experienced was vertigo and dizziness Ah. and a feeling of being on a boat, you know, kind of thing and walking around. And I had no idea they were there. So I didn't, I didn't know what it was. So I tried every supplement and neurofeedback and EMDR and um, sacred cranial, yeah, everything, the whole gamut. And um, spent a lot of time just trying to figure out what it was. And I'm, I'm, I wonder if, high EMF ah. exposure slash poisoning has a really profound effect on the cerebellum. Has anyone done any, any work I, that you're aware I of to that I don't end? know of any risk, but boy, you've just piqued my interest in that. Right, isn't that interesting? So, so what happened when you moved out? Well, first, you know, it was interesting. Uh, I was living in this apartment for three years and I knew that the ambient radiation yeah. around me was high. So I never had it tested. Yeah. And I knew that, you know, I was renting a flat, so I wasn't going to go yeah. spend $5,000 to EMF shield my yeah. whole bedroom and make yeah. a Faraday cage. Although that's what I would recommend now. <laughs> I wish I had done. But uh, anyway, I randomly or not randomly, maybe by a divine intervention or protection, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wandered up into this building to watch the sunset and I found these cell towers. But six months before that, I got uh, a device in my house called a Blue Shield. I actually have the the pocket version uh, on me right now. And it's a scalar wave technology, which I did a show on um, recently. So you you can look that up for anyone that doesn't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, I I installed this Blue Shield in my house and then started carrying it around, not knowing I I was near cell towers, but just because I knew the ambient levels were high anyway and it Mm -hmm. couldn't hurt. And I started getting really um, pretty severe Herxheimer reaction when I put this in my house and I contacted the inventor mm. in, um, in New Zealand and they went, oh, it's totally normal. What's happening is you're, you're finally detoxing properly mm. when you sleep because you're going mm. full parasympathetic. Mm. So after that initial kind of Herxheimer reaction period, then a lot of those symptoms went away. Wow. And I just thought I, I didn't correlate them until yeah. after I found the towers and <sighs> moved out. And I looked back and I was like, holy shit. Six yeah. months ago, the, the the majority of my symptoms subsided dramatically. And so it was not possible for it to be placebo. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because there was a marked time between when I installed this technology in my house, which a yeah. lot of the scientifically skeptical people poo-poo because if you come in there with an EMF meter, there's no change, yeah. right? And it's, you know, it's a very subtle energy yeah. technology and it's on a it literally is on a quantum level. It sounds like you're familiar yeah. with scalar wave technology, but a lot of people don't believe in it. I just know it's true because there's my end, end to one, uh, you know, experiment work. Yeah. So anyway, um, my symptoms decreased a lot from installing that technology wow. unknowingly. But once I moved, now I'm in an area called Laurel Canyon, which is kind yep. of up in the hills and it's yeah. in between. I'm in a little valley. Beautiful. It's much better. There's no cell towers very nearby. 
Uh, and now I'm, you know, I don't get that vertigo. Um, yeah. I don't wake up with headaches. I don't have the dizziness. My yeah. brain fog is 80% improved. Wow. But it's just, it's just, it's horrific what we've done with this technology. Absolutely. And we're going to be looking back, hopefully in not so many years, going like, oh my God, do you remember when we put cell towers, towers yeah. all over the planet, you know? So anyway. And 5G is going to not make it any better, for sure. Oh man, I know. It's, it's a balance, you know, I was talking to Dave Asprey about this yesterday. It's like finding the balance of awareness and fear, Yeah, you know, yeah. where you do what you can to mitigate, but the... <laughs> The cortisol and the adrenaline and the amygdala excitement yeah. of fear is probably worse for you in some yeah. cases than yeah. having a Wi-Fi router across yeah. from you Absolutely. in the room. You know, so it's like I always kind of struggle with that. Don't want to be a, a paranoid boy in the bubble and and suffer from that neuroses, sure. but also I want to really avoid, of course, living and being very near, you know, extreme levels of radiation like that. Well, touching on your, your, your yeah, so in, anyway. introduction to that point, yeah. I don't know to what extent EMF interferes with vestibular stimulation, but what I do know is that vestibular stimulation is the power that drives the cerebellum. So, for instance, oh. ch children, children that have uh, tubes, if they have a lot, of, um, a lot of ear infections as a child, um, sometimes they can have tubes inserted, which, which helps very often those children will show up, will manifest as, as having uh, learning issues later on. And some ask, is it the tubes? Uh, uh, and I, my view is no, it's almost certainly the infections. Because when you have inner ear infections, that means the infection means it reduces the sensory stimulation. The cerebellum isn't working at those very periods when you're doing the rapid development in your early childhood. If that happens then you bypass some of the development and it's going to show up with lack of basic skills, maybe eye tracking skills or auditory processing skills. So there's a, quite a big correlation between children that have vestibular earish ear infection issues. Alongside that, you mentioned uh, vertigo and so on. Travel sickness is far more prevalent in children with reading and concentration issues. It's reduction of of the efficacy of the cerebellum. And the final one, which is really exciting, is if you've got a child that's severely autistic, they will love, or most, or not all, most will love going to a fairground. Why do they love going to fairground rides? Why do they get so much fun and excitement about that? Because your vestibular stimulation is hugely excited. You're going up and down and around, and that huge amount of vestibular stimulation increases the effectiveness of the cerebellum the connections in your cerebellum are far more active and alive and you feel better. So can you see how all this comes together? Wow, that's very interesting. Um, I hate <laughs> going on amusement park rides. Right. I get very disoriented and I'm also very prone to travel sickness, as you called it. I, I wow. like that as a comprehensive term versus just jet lag because sure. it's more than jet lag. Sure. Um, so that's that's very interesting, that, that correlation. So if... If someone's able to repair and restore their cerebellum, is it feasible that they would become less susceptible to travel Absolutely. sickness and the aversion to Absolutely. amusement park rides and such? Travel sickness is usually a clue you've got a lot more potential. Because travel sickness is saying there's some underdeveloped areas in the links between vestibular and the cerebellum. That to me is potential. You know, people have probably always told you, Luke, you've got massive potential. Oh, story of my life. Every report card. <laughs> I think I have my report card somewhere and it's like, if he would just stop being a class clown and pay attention, he could do really well. He's, <laughs> he's smart, but, you know. Well, now we're talking about 
exactly where that potential is and exactly what you've got to do to bring it into play. Wow. Is that exciting? Uh, yeah. Hello. Um, is there any connection to tinnitus, the ringing in the ears? I don't know. I suspect so, but it's not an area of, you know, I've, I've had to, it's a bit like being a mosquito on a nudist beach. If you know what <laughs> right, I mean. right. There's just so much we could do. I've had to, I, you know, I'm easily distracted as it is. So people are always slapping my wrist. No, you can't research that. No, you, you've got to focus and get really good. And, you know, in my heart, because of what happened to my daughter, my, my focus is children that are struggle, adults that are still struggling. You know, we get huge, research, huge results with athletes and so on. And I love athletes, but not as much as I love helping kids. So I've had to narrow down my efforts. I've got a, I've got a cousin that's severely impaired by tinnitus. And she's a bit annoyed with me because I've not done the research. I suspect you're right. I haven't got there yet. Well, yeah, you've got to choose your battles, I suppose, and really focus on yeah. what matters most. Uh, you talked about uh, Dr. Daniel Amen, who, by the way, I would love to get on my podcast. So <laughs> I'm going to talk to you about that later. <laughs> I've been kind of waiting for a, you know, a first-person intro, someone that knows him and works with him. I think his work's just absolutely brilliant. And when it comes to brain scans in particular and really taking a look at um, brains, it's, it's quite astonishing, the stuff mm. that he's able to see mm. and discover. Uh, how did you get introduced to him and you know, what's he done other than, you know, support the idea of your work? How has your relationship um, developed since you first found one another? Sure. Well, well, he's, he's a scientist. He wants to see evidence for everything. So he's, he's pointed quite a few people to, to, uh, to my program, to my intervention. And he's working now on analyzing the results. And I think he wants to, to write it up. I don't know exactly where he's at. I, I did three podcasts with him one day after he cross-examined me for a couple of hours. Um, and that was very exciting. I'm hugely impressed by his approach to every individual. He studies, he studies the brain of everyone. So he doesn't just prescribe pills based on the symptoms. He looks at the root cause of the symptoms. And I think that, that that's one area where most, most, um, most psychiatrists have been missing out. They have not had the tools, the skills, the measures to be able to look at where the root cause is. So it's any treatment that's symptom-based is going to be more hit and miss than it needs to be. Do his brain scans with problematic people with the kind of issues we're talking about show, you know, a gray out in the cerebellum? Is he able to see that something's yeah. going on there? And has he looked at any before and after scans of someone, you know, going through the training that you've developed and really working on that? Does, does it show up on a physiological level? It does. It absolutely does. He, he said that, that a very large proportion of those that present to him with issues in the brain have low blood flow in the cerebellum. And that's, of course, what we're good at doing. You know, the very exercises, physical exercises that we prescribe to people are, del- are, are, are uh, focused on creating blood flow in the cerebellum. So if you create stimulation and blood flow, you're creating the environment where new cells are created. So there's research showing that the type of exercises we give increases the density of gray matter creates even more brain cells in that very part of the brain that's going to mastermind it's like the electrician or the computer programmer that masterminds the connections with everything else in the brain you know we were hearing this weekend about the brain has virtually unlimited capacity because the the number of potential connections between every brain cell is huge so we do have this huge potential but the secret to doing it is stimulating cerebellum in such a way that plasticity multiplies 
and you create more exciting circuits. Oh, that's interesting. I've, I've spent a lot of time talking over the last couple of days about a couple of different topics, um, having done a podcast actually about one of them, and that's hyperbaric oxygen yeah. therapy, something I'm a big fan of. Sure. And then talking to Dr. Amy Killen and, yeah. um, and Dr. Um, Harry Adelson, just about yeah. the developments in stem yeah. cells and looking at the correlation between stacking both of those therapies, right? Because in yeah. the hyperbaric, you're oxygenating your plasma, yeah. right? And then your red blood cells don't have to go so far to look around yeah. to carry oxygen. Yeah. And then of course the stem cells are, are magnitude, are, are multiplied by orders of magnitude with hyperbaric and combining those two. So I wonder mm. what the potential would be if we're trying to get more blood flow oxygen mm. into the cerebellum. Mm. I wonder uh, in the future, if there's some correlation between those two modalities and yours together, stacking those three to really drive Absolutely. all of that healing potential Absolutely. to that area of the brain. Absolutely. We are at a very exciting time where there's so many exciting breakthroughs, many of which would be synergistic. I mean, it's going to take us years to, 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 to work through this. And that's a shame because we've got, a, we've got a, such a well-established medical profession that seems to take decades <laughs> to change. Yeah. And I, and I see very exciting stuff, but very lit, relatively tiny amounts of investment going into it. So I would love to inspire academics who are at all interested in the cerebellum. I'd love to work with them. I, you know, I'd like to, to get a hundred research studies and, and including, you know, combining with uh, hyperbaric oxygen and other modalities, because there's definitely huge synergy. Another uh, modality that I've used on my brain is neurofeedback. I've done yeah. quite a bit of that. I did 40 years of Zen, which is um, what used to be kind of a branch of Bulletproof. It's a Dave mm. Asprey mm. Um, program that he's developed. And now they've, you know, changed it considerably. It's, it's grown mm. quite a bit since I did it. And then I work with um, Dr. Andrew Hill, mm. who's a um, cognitive neuroscientist mm. at UCLA, a professor, and he's got a place called Peak Brain Institute mm. out in West LA. And I've been training with him for a couple of years. And we did a QEEG on my brain one year ago, which mm -hmm. incidentally is at a time when I was living under those cell towers. Wow. Yeah. And then I did neurofeedback and I do all kinds of stuff, you mm -hmm. know, that hopefully helps my brain. And then um, a few weeks ago, we did another scan and I had three standard deviations of improvement wow. overall in my brain function, wow. measuring brain waves, yeah. brain wave activity, which is I mean, even he was like, I don't know what you're doing. This, <laughs> some of this is neurofeedback, but yeah. whatever you're doing, which is, probably has a lot to do with my brain was severely impaired sure. from the radiation sickness sure. that I was experiencing. Uh, but that was, that was really exciting. So I'm wondering, have you made any correlations between your training and the cerebellum and neurofeedback? And does neurofeedback do anything for the cerebellum? Or does that, does that branch of science kind of ignore that part of the brain and just focus on you know, the brainwave activity? What I know of neurofeedback is it has enormous impact everywhere, but I've not yet seen evidence of it having impact in the cerebellum. Now, I, I, so I'm, not, I'm not the right expert to ask. I, I, I'm a fan of neurofeedback, and I'm working with a researcher right now who's got a lot of experience of neurofeedback. His view is that my approach to the cerebellum is the best approach he knows of. So he's he's putting all his time and resource in working with me to finding ways of starting from the bottom-up approach. Neurofeedback is a, is a lot of all over and some top-down. I'm working from the bottom-up, so it's kind of real root cause stuff. So don't interpret that as any, any disrespect to neurofeedback. On the contrary, 
what has been Im- uh, impairing it has been the ability to research it in a thorough way because everybody's brain is different. So creating double-blind studies where you've got control groups and so on is really hard when every brain is fundamentally wired very differently. So they've had they've had a problem in coming up with research that that proves um, uh, absolutely that they're making huge change. So I think at the moment they're they're having to undersell themselves a little bit. But they're actually probably doing more good than than the research is currently showing. That's my hunch. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I asked that because I've never you know I've had a lot of conversations with Dr. Hill, who's a brilliant brilliant guy, and um, I don't think in any of my scans or any of the work we've done or the you know the different. Mm. Um, the different trainings that I've done, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard the word cerebellum once. Yeah, that's right. So it right. must be just kind of, you know, it's just not part of that modality. But because I saw quantifiable results, and I don't know that, you know, I was, probably didn't do anything for my cerebellum, but I definitely am in much better shape brain health-wise than I was yeah. before due to stacking all of the different practices and modalities. But it'd be interesting to see uh, what happens in terms of the QEEG after yeah. undergoing six months of your yeah. cerebellum training, going in and getting scanned again and not doing much else. Maybe take a break from neurofeedback, mm. focus on really repairing the cerebellum, getting the blood flow back in, the, back in there, and then see what happens in terms of uh, improvement on overall brain health based on the QEEG and brain wave Absolutely. You know, analysis. Interesting stuff. Um, I want to back up a little bit to some of the some of the symptoms because I think that's something you know a lot yeah. about. Um, so especially in relation to kids and learning disabilities mm-hmm. and things like that, because based on my own experience and even a couple of close friends of mine that I think would probably be diagnosed with some level of um, dyslexia, mm-hmm. maybe even ADD, adult you know adult guys in their thirties and forties, whatever, um, and having suffered a lot in school because mm-hmm. I felt mm-hmm. really dumb and. As an adult, I just chalk it up to the type of intelligence that I was born with mm. is different than the way that they train mm. intelligence mm. in a U.S. public school in the mm. 70s and 80s, right? And so as an adult, I've had to realize, oh, I, I'm actually sort of smart. I just, I learn in a different way. And so like, if you hand me an Excel spreadsheet, it looks like Chinese to me. If you hand me an infographic with shapes yeah. and colors, yeah. I get it immediately. <laughs> so I, you know, I've, I've been tested for ADD and ADHD and I, I don't have it according to the, you know, the neurofeedback method of, of testing. Um, but what's the difference between ADHD and dyslexia in kids? Are, are those often misdiagnosed? Are they the same thing? Is it just, you know, um, two names for kind of the same sort of issue with this and how's it related to the cerebellum? Well, there's so much confusion around this and this confusion hurts and holds back so many kids. You know, why is it that why is it that a large proportion of of hugely successful people, billionaires and so on, dropped out of the school system at some point? <laughs> I did. <laughs> well, but what so the education system as we know it does not measure the real underlying intelligence. You know, if you've got any limitation in your ability to read or, or to write and get all your thoughts down, if you've got any impairment there, then you're not going to see the real intelligence of the child. So the the irony is, Luke, that the brighter you are, the more chance there is that there's going to be some limiting limitation in skill development. Like there's a glass ceiling. Glass ceiling grows over your eye tracking, so you never actually read very well. Or some glass ceiling holds back the development of your auditory processing, so what you hear doesn't effortlessly turn into thoughts you comprehend. 
So, for instance, children that are listening in a classroom, after three or four sentences, they're so far behind with processing the teachers carrying on without them and they're looking out the window or they're making a fuss or making their mates laugh in the classroom. So the brighter you are, the more impaired you are. So that leads to this huge misunderstanding. Now, I, I was taken in by this. When I started my research 20 years ago, I started thinking in terms of what is ADHD and what is the disease called dyslexia and so on. I was barking up the wrong tree because after I'd met a few tens of thousands of these children and adults, I realized we were talking about, in the main, very bright people that were being regarded as very slow people, as if they'd got some permanent limitation to their brain. And, you know, I turned it around. My first book was Dyslexia, the Miracle Cure, which was this topic of a very famous broadcaster in Britain who did a program on me. And afterwards, I realized that was wrong. We shouldn't be calling these children by any label. We should be saying, they've got huge potential. Our job is to find it. So I've kind of turned around completely in my, my whole thought process. So what's the difference between dyslexia and ADHD? Well, if you went to half a dozen uh, experts in the US and half a dozen experts in the UK with the same child, you'd probably get about 10 different answers. You'd get, tend to get a bit more dyslexia diagnoses in the UK and a bit more ADHD diagnosis in the US. That's the kind of the way it is. But generally... ADHD is applied to those children that struggle with concentration, have a degree of hyperactivity, whereas dyslexia is more focused upon reading ability. But the fact is that both all those issues manifest to some extent or other in all those children with both of those labels. So there's confusion even about the whole diagnosis process. You then asked very, very wisely, what's the link with the cerebellum? When the cerebellum is itself not stimulated, not developed, it's not creating plasticity, it's not wiring up skills, you will get underdevelopment of key skills. And dyslexia or reading difficulties is almost always poor eye tracking. So instead of their eyes going smoothly across the line, taking the information in, their eyes are jumping up and down and backwards and forwards, trying to focus on the words. As a result, that poor child has got to work so hard just to take in the information. They've got scrambled letters in their brain. They're working hard to unscramble them. And then they work out eventually, oh, that's the word. Then they move on and have to do the same with the next word and the next word. They get to the end of the sentence and they've forgotten what those first words are in the sentence. They've had to work so hard. So that's the problem with reading issues. With listening issues, with concentration issues, it's often the same thing, except that it's applying to turning sound waves into comprehended thoughts. If that skill isn't developed, it will take them several seconds to decipher what's been said in a sentence. By the time they've deciphered it, the teacher or the whoever is speaking has gone on two sentences. <laughs> right. They're left in the dust beyond. by so that time. Both of those skills are linked to the cerebellum. <laughs> Likewise, often children with those issues often will be poor at sporting skills. Some are poor at all skills. That's lack of automaticity lack of cerebellar development of the coordination between balance and gross movement. So all of these are skills, and that's what I love people to understand. Instead of looking at a child and assuming they're thick, or they're stupid, or they're lazy, or even worse, they've had bad parents. We're actually generally looking at children who've got huge potential, that, a potential that can now be found. And do you, do you think, based on your research, that 
all of these issues that kids have are in some way related to the dysfunction or the impairment of the cerebellum? Absolutely. So is it at a point, are all the diagnoses and the minutia of trying to figure out what it is almost irrelevant? Like, let's just go to the thing and fix it? Let's go to what, <laughs> what's, exactly, let's go to what's holding them back. Right. You know, the, the, if you look at the process of diagnoses, A, it's complicated and it's all symptom-based. If you look at the root cause and do some neurological tests, you can tell precisely where it is, and it always points to the cerebellum. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. Something I've covered a lot on this show is the dangers of EMF and how to protect yourself while staying sane. Now, we all know that we're surrounded by cell signals, by Wi-Fi. We've got our laptop, our tablets, our phones nearby. And there's two areas of your body that are most susceptible to radiation. Guess what they are? Well, your thin skull with your brain inside that, of course, essentially runs your whole body. And then your reproductive organs located from the waist down. You know what I'm saying? Enter my friends over at Lambs. You can go to getlambs.com, get the most well-made, comfortable, completely normal, and cool-looking radiation-proof underwear. Now, right now, at the time of this recording, they've got a men's line. I'm sure if you're a woman, you'd be quite comfortable wearing the smaller men's ones, as the case may be, although they do have a women's line coming out soon. They also make an EMF-proof beanie. So these guys are doing it right. I'm so happy that they're in existence because I'm wearing them every single day. I threw out all of my underwear. This is all I wear. It's all I will ever wear. And you'd expect that they'd be really scratchy and made of tinfoil or something like that, so you wouldn't want to wear them. But if no one told you that they were radiation-proof, you would never know. They're super soft and comfortable and just very well-made, and they do a very good job of being completely radiation-proof. So at least you know that part of your body is protected. So if you want to check it out, which I highly recommend that you do, you can go to getlambs.com. And if you enter the code THELIFESTYLIST, you will save 20% off before New Year's Eve 2019. If you hear this after New Year's Eve and it's into 2020, the code THELIFESTYLIST will still save you 10% off at getlambs.com. That's getlambs.com. Get yourself over there and restock your entire underwear drawer right now. I'm deadly serious. It's such an easy switch to make and one that's going to have a huge impact on your health. Getlambs.com. And now back to the interview. What about kids? And I know one kid that fits this description intimately, (laughs) being myself. For example, when I was a kid, I really excelled in reading, writing, language. I think it's no accident that I ended up having conversations and I'm able to learn foreign languages relatively easily and things like that. But I still can barely do basic math on paper. You know, I don't even think I know how to do division. I could do simple addition and subtraction, probably with the formula that I would have to go back and kind of remember, right? Obviously, who needs to know how to do it when you've got an iPhone next to you? (laughs) But uh, science and um, very linear ways of thinking and problem solving was and continues to be very challenging. Even um, coming over here to the UK, it drives me fucking crazy. Everything's in military time. And then 
my, you know, my friend Tim's like, oh, you just add 12 or subtract 12. I'm like, dude, I would have to, I mean, I would have to stop in the street, you know, someone, hey, meet me at this time or the bus comes at this time, whatever. I'd have to stop and like, really, okay, 12 plus blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, I, I it just seemed to lack the ability. So do you think, say, you know, one kid has an aptitude for art and language and is maybe perhaps a bit more um, right brain centered or um, enabled versus a kid that, you know, is the converse. Mm. Do you think that deficiencies in that area also have something to do with the cerebellum? In other words, um, are all kids able to up-level their skills by addressing the cerebellum, regardless of what their propensities are in skill level? Different parts of the cerebellum are responsible for different types of skill. So when it comes to maths or music or art or speaking, that's different parts of the cerebellum are responsible. And there's work taking place right now on identifying which specific part is responsible for which specific type of skill. So those that are natural at maths or natural at art or dancing or flying a helicopter or whatever particular complex skill it is, it's because the part or parts of the cerebellum responsible for putting together that skill, automatizing the process, is itself fully developed. So with maths, there are lots of concepts that need to become automatized so you get it. So if the part of the cerebellum that's responsible for helping you automatize those processes is itself not developed, then maths concepts won't go in. Now, what I want to be careful of is that you don't interpret that that I can definitely always improve every part of the cerebellum and therefore I could transform your maths. I'm not going to promise that if I'm very cautious about promising anything. All I know is that we make a huge difference to just about everybody that goes through our program. Cool. Very interesting. Now, maths is, maths is a foundational thing. So if you're going to be good at maths, you need to know the basics and then the next layer and the next layer and the next layer and the next layer. So you're not going to be able to start doing differential calculus uh, day one because it's very much a layered thing. It's not like learning a language. So... So if you have missed out on those foundation layers, you'll need someone to take the time to put those pieces back in after the cerebellum has itself been sorted out. Yeah, and also I think in adulthood, it's unlikely that someone would really want to go against the grain and try to yeah. gain aptitude in something that's not necessary sure. or that they don't have a passion to learn about. Yeah, I, just th- I think the, um, the potential for parents and teachers and the education system in general... Uh, to be able to address some of these deficiencies that are cerebellum related versus just every kid being unique and having abilities and aptitude in different areas, right? Like there's always going to be a kid that's great at art and music and sucks at science and math, right? So you can't necessarily, you know, change one's orientation, but if there are extreme learning disabilities and deficiencies early on, at least you're able to give them a fighting chance. And later in life, they they may, may or may not have a passion in life or um, dreams and goals that need those attributes or skills in order to be successful. And whilst you've got a smartphone, you're always going to have a solution to any maths problems you've got. Right. What about the effect of acute drug and alcohol abuse on the cerebellum? Is there any evidence to support the idea that the cerebellum gets further impaired through addictions, et cetera? There is there is some some evidence. It's not it's not absolute yet. But what is what is very clear is when you take alcohol, alcohol goes straight to the cerebellum. 
Really? So oh, when, I didn't know that. when someone loses and starts to slow their speech or starts to fall about, it's because the coordination of the cerebellum has been impaired. The alcohol has shorted out several key circuits and connections, and suddenly what you were really good at, like walking and talking, suddenly you're not so good at, or sometimes very poor at, and you start falling over. So alcohol does go straight to the cerebellum. It's been some interesting work on rats. <laughs> that's proved that point pretty conclusively. Drunk rats. Yeah. Dr- <laughs> <laughs> well, well, based on uh, that, I think a, a lot of people walking around uh, the city of London have impaired cerebellums <laughs> anytime after dark. It seems about 50% of the people are pissed drunk. Um, but Daniel Amen's doing some great work on showing, showing the effect of long-term use of drugs on different parts of the brain. You can see physical, physical changes there in parts of the brain that the studies he's doing on that are worth looking at. Yeah, I've seen some of his scans and it's terrifying. It, brains yeah. look like Swiss cheese, yeah. especially with crystal meth, um, yeah. uh, probably horribly cut MDMA, things like that over time can really trash your brain. So I was curious about but, that. But the wonderful thing about the cerebellum is that you can reinstate it at any age in life. You really? Know, you know, the early theories that, that our plasticity goes and fades out in teenage and so on. It's totally wrong. You know, we've done work on people up to the age of 90. In fact, we made, really? a, we made a lady of 82 uh, read. She was a very touching case. She started to read for the first time in her life at 82. At the age of 84, I, I heard from her again, and she was reading and writing in three languages. What? You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. All right, I'm starting this training right now. Podcast is over. Get out the gear. <laughs> um, and then what role do nutrients in dietary disciplines have in the health and function of the cerebellum? Is that, is that relevant? And if so, how much? It is absolutely relevant. It's a very complex area. I'm a big fan of dietary, uh, appropriate diets and using nutrients appropriately. I don't tend to mix them in my research because I don't want to have confusing results. I want people to know what is making the difference. So absolutely believe in them. And if you've got a poor diet, get your diet sorted out. If you haven't found out what nutrients you need, find out and get that right as well. And when we deal with severe cases of, say, ADHD or autism, it's a great place to start. Because often, if you've got a child or an adult, that matter, that simply cannot comply with a program that's going to transform their cerebellum, sometimes you have to start with getting their diet right so they end up being able to comply and behave and perform appropriately so they can they can then get stuck into a program like ours so big fan i'm not doing combined research synergistic research at the moment going down the line we will get there in terms of autism and some of these other serious afflictions what miracle results have you seen you know obviously you know nobody wants to give medical claims and and things (laughs) like that but i know from just chatting to you you've told me some stories about the 80 two-year-old woman yeah. and, and these kind of things. And I, I think that when it comes to kids, especially autism is probably one of the the hardest things we face. You know, a good friend of mine has an autistic kid and it's wow. just, it's absolutely heartbreaking and, um, and so confusing. And I think it's one of those things that really rips families apart and it's just such a seemingly hopeless situation. Yeah. So what... Well, what, let me talk about my stepson, um, uh, Ninka's, Ninka's eldest son. He was infantile autistic uh, and pretty pretty severe case today he's got a full-time job they love him at his work 
he creates amazing music. He's a he's a DJ and a, a music producer, creating a music music, and he's got an incredible sense of humor. Now, anybody that knows anything about the severity of infantile autism, just to describe that would sound like an absurd journey. Now, Ninka did a huge amount of work on his diet and dietary input and nutrition and got him to a very good place. I came along and helped him with all his skill development. So he's gone through two years of college, become a music producer. So I'm talking about an example that I've actually been able to watch what has happened. I could tell you at the older end of the spectrum, uh, a family, that an elderly couple, they'd got a son in his late 40s and he went through my program. It actually took him three years, but it changed his life. And they came to me at the end and it was very touching. They said, we're not afraid to get old and die now because he can look after himself. So that wow. was the severity of the change. He, up, until, wow. up until the time he did my program, he would just follow them around, silently not talking. He couldn't dress himself or wash properly. After three years, he was at college, learning how to be a chef in his late 40s. And that's the kind of change that's possible. So it, these are, you know, I could thousands of tear-jerking stories because everyone I deal with feels like the first for some reason because it's so important and so life-changing. Wow, that's cool. Um, in terms of people that just want to up their performance more in the biohacking or even athletics, what do you think the missing links are when we're trying to use nootropics and meditation, mindfulness, um, neurofeedback, as we mentioned, and kind of missing the cerebellum piece? What does getting the cerebellum on board um, look like in terms of just someone who's healthy, happy, highly functioning, but wants to take it to the next level? Well, one of the things that cerebellum impacts it is to what extent do we get overloaded? We've got a, our prefrontal cortex is where our thinking brain is. It's, it's the bit of the brain where we make decisions, we remember lists, and it's the bit of the brain that gets stressed when it gets overloaded. So when the brain is, when the brain is overloaded, it's often because parts of the cerebellum hasn't finished off the development of skills and as a result, the thinking brain is having to make up for that. So if you think about when you're learning to ride a bike or learning to drive a car, you're thinking incredibly hard. And when you're thinking hard about anything, you're not doing it very well. If it's riding a bike, you're probably falling off and so on. If it's riding a car, then you're hitting the curb and you're doing all sorts of jumpy, lumpy things until it becomes a fully hardwired and developed skill. And that's what the cerebellum does. So if you've got any skill that has never reached its full potential, it's hit a glass ceiling, then your thinking brain, your working memory is going to be full of stuff that shouldn't be there. You're going to find it far more stressful to live in that state. You're going to find, you're going to far more frequently lose emotional control, get frustrated, get angry, or whatever it is. So the role of the cerebellum in creating extra cognitive capacity that makes us feel more relaxed, less stressed, able to cognitively cope with far more, is so much. So I see it working synergistically with all of these other things. You know, obviously I'm biased, but I would start with a cerebellum. Let's, let's get my brain being the best version it can possibly be and then see where I need some help after that. That makes perfect sense. So that would to me, indicate that issues like decision fatigue yeah. and, you know, the, the energy expenditure of switching tasks. Exactly. You know, these, these are things that I'm, you know, becoming aware of as I work on my productivity and focus, sure. for example, of 
you know, I've developed systems where if, when I'm doing my podcast, mm. I, I batch every single task out. Wow. So I'll do f- six of the same things in a row, then switch tasks and do the next step of yeah. whatever process it might yeah. be. But it, it, it takes a bit of discipline and, you yeah. know, kind of building my own internal SOP for lack of a yeah. better term yeah. so that my operations and systems are in place to lessen the fatigue so I can be more effective at each of those tasks. But I'm imagining that if our cerebellum is on board and kicking ass that we would have less decision fatigue and and a a greater ability to switch tasks and, you know, kind of for lack of a better term, freeing up Ram, you know, space in our, in our brain to be able to operate within that. Does that make it makes sense total sense. A great way of expressing it. I'll, I'll use that if I might. Thank yeah, you. you can take it. Uh, Not copywritten yet. The, your, the, the thinking brain is where we make decisions. And the more thinking brain capacity that's used up with incompletely developed key skills, the less decision-making space you've got. So you end up making poorer decisions. You make up, end up making short-term decisions because you simply don't have the capacity to take into account the longer-term things, the health things, health-related things. For, so you make worse decisions with limited uh, thinking brain space. Oh, you got that right. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you also are less organized. You're more forgetful. The thinking brain is where it's the, it's the bit that links long-term memory to short-term memory. It's where we keep lists and where we organize things. If that is full of stuff that shouldn't be there, I'm going to be very hampered in my ability to be organized. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, I was going to ask next about memory, short-term, long-term memory, which is something I've struggled a lot with and a lot of people I know do. Uh, you know, forgetfulness, walking walking mm. out of a room and going, wait, what was I, what was I doing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. Like early, early onset of dementia, you know, I'm like 48 and sometimes I'm just like, what, what am I doing? I walk into a room and I have no idea why I went in there, you know? And of course it depends on a number of things like sleep and well, a classic and, example. And whatnot, but how, how does this help memory? Well, let me just give you one classic example. Sure, sure. Um, um, any mum listening will relate to this. You've, you've got a child that's struggling with some aspect of learning. Often, if you send them upstairs to fetch three things, they'll get to the top of the stairs and say, what did you send me for? Because that, if, if, if their cerebellum isn't fully developed, it means probably means their balance and coordination isn't fully automatized. Just, just the act of walking upstairs will put stress on the thinking brain and force out all the things that she'd put there, the list that she'd just given him to go and get from upstairs. So that's a classic example. So, so the, 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 the impact of the cerebellum is to free up working memory space by taking stuff out of there that shouldn't be being processed there. It should be being processed up in the cortex where there's a, virtually unlimited capacity and certainly infinitely greater speed. So any undeveloped skills fills up this critical thinking brain space, which hampers working memory. It means we've got nowhere to store stuff that we want to retain. You know, generally we retain stuff into long-term memory when we're asleep, but what you learn in the day, you tend to park in your working memory. And then at night when you're asleep, it puts it up into long-term memory. If your thinking brain is full, your working memory is full, you've got nowhere to store it. So your retention is a lot, lot less. And the same in reverse. If, if your thinking brain is full, you've got nowhere to recover thoughts from long-term memory. So you might well be in a stressful situation. You can't remember something. Then later on in the day, when things are calmer, it comes back to you because your working memory is, is clearer at that point. 
What role does the cerebellum have in subconscious versus conscious mind? That's a very deep question. I don't think I'm qualified to answer it fully, but here's my, my thoughts. The subconscious mind is incredibly important, you know, and I'm, I'm working now on understanding the role of the amygdala, on, uh, especially following trauma, and the impact that has on, on creating all sorts of PTSD-type symptoms and putting us into fight or flight and so on. The, the cerebellum and its effect on, short, on the, the, the working memory capacity doesn't have a direct impact on the subconscious. What it does do, because it frees up working memory capacity, it means that we less often revert to uh, or lose control of our emotions, and therefore we're less likely to be triggering things in the amygdala. So it doesn't have a direct consequence on the subconscious, but it does have some indirect benefits. Does that oh, make that, any sense? Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and that leads me to my exact next question, which again, like many of my questions, um, are personally motivated. Uh, something that I've come to realize really through doing this podcast and interviewing so many brilliant people um, in all realms of human development and performance like yourself is really the meaningful role that not just early childhood trauma, but especially that, but even, you know, any point of trauma during one's life really shapes who you become sure. and the, um, the capacity for handling stress and the capacity yeah. for intimacy and yeah. um, vulnerability and that fight or flight response. Yeah. And so the deeper down the rabbit hole I go with that, um, the more I find how meaningful that really is. Sure. And you mentioned the amygdala now getting a, a my, you know, my basic Flintstonian understanding of how the amygdala gets damaged by mm -hmm. trauma. And then, you, know, you have a flood of adrenaline and cortisol, mm. which we kind of call in common parlance being triggered or you're mm. activated or whatever the case may be, where you're ha now having as an adult um, a completely abnormal and exaggerated internal and sometimes mm. externally expressed emotional experience, mm. right? Mm. Where, mm. you know, someone slams the door and you, you jump out of your skin yeah. or someone, yeah. you know, is a little joking with you and a little sarcastic and you take it very personally and all of these yeah. issues that we have that I think are not only painful subjectively for sure. the person having that overreaction or that experience, but also such a hindrance to our intimate relationships, mm. right? Because we get hijacked by the amygdala and that stress response that we experience. Mm. And I think um, as someone who, you know, I was in therapy by the time I was, you know, 14 years mm. old. And I mean, I've mm. done so much work and mm. in my recent years thought, okay, I've kind of dealt with the childhood stuff and I'm good now. I don't need to keep regurgitating that stuff mm. and telling the stories and reliving it. Let's just move on. Mm. And the fact is, um, I find it very difficult to move on because I, I'm continuing to see how those sure. things resurface sure. in a completely unrelated situation. And I'm, I'm part of like when I took ayahuasca the first mm. four times, it was like, I was really shown how, mm. um, profoundly impacted I was as a kid through mm. neglect, abandonment, mm. trauma, mm. and how those things still very much drive many sure. aspects of my personality and are the things that really hold me back from having a full, yeah. um, joyful experience of life. Yeah. And so it's, I'm just like, Jesus, how long do I have to work on this? <laughs> you know, it's like, does it ever end? Like, can I ever move on from that? And I know so many people listening because I've done shows uh, specifically 
on trauma and mm. and all of this with Mastin Kip. I did a great one for a couple mm. hours. He's you know one of the most prominent kind of trauma informed mm. teachers, mm. leaders, and um, my listeners really resonated with that one. Mm. And we're all kind of realizing like, wow, yeah, especially if we had a rough childhood that. Yeah. You know, we're kind of doomed and it's like, you know, the first seven years of your life, you you, you get wrecked and you spend the next yeah. 80 trying to fix what happened to you, you know? So yeah. um, that's kind of a long way of expressing and, and asking the question, how does the cerebellum and, and bringing that back online mm. through this training that you've developed, how does that help us with our reactivity and our emotional mm. balance and our ability to connect and to be vulnerable and, mm. and intimate and to receive and express mm. love and have mm. a really connected trauma-free experience of life. Another very deep and complex subject. Talk, let's just touch on, on the, the creation of, of a, a child that's affected by trauma and what's happening in those traumas. The children that have those very negative early childhood experiences, they're, they're creating a, uh, an automatic alarm system, a very powerful alarm system that mainly goes off with false alarms, virtually <laughs> yeah, always right. false alarms throughout their life. And, I got a parking ticket. I want to kill someone. Yeah. And, and but, but when you go through your early childhood and you don't feel safe, if a parent is not available or abusing you or whatever is happening so that you just don't feel safe, that alarm system becomes very powerful and very sophisticated and you can't control it. So if it shows itself up as, as some form of PTSD or fight-or-flight mechanisms in later life, it's really cruel to say to those people, pull yourself together, because they haven't got a choice. They're not choosing to behave like that. They're not choosing to go into fight-or-flight. And their brain gets filled with cortisol, and it takes hours to recover. So it's really important that people fully understand what's happening in those that have those issues. So my heart really goes out to folk that have had severe trauma in childhood because it does take some undoing and you've had the, the you've been able to go through ayahuasca and so on i am determined that i'm going to work with some some academics in the coming years to come up with affordable ways low cost ways of getting people help to overcome those you know things like emdr they are effective and i'm researching now because i think there's ways of making emdr many times more effective than it currently is. And that could be very, very affordable and, and um, uh, uh, relatable to people. But what does the cerebellum do? Cerebellum increases your cognitive, your conscious capacity, which does give you more strength to combat, to avoid going into, in, into the subconscious amygdala-related um, uh, state but it doesn't solve it. So cerebellum is very powerful, but it doesn't solve the fundamental issue. The amygdala has wired that up and you've got to work in the subconscious. So there's no point in doing conscious interventions to deal with the subconscious. It just right, doesn't, right. doesn't work. But what we right. do is give you more cognitive strength, more cognitive capacity, a greater sense of confidence, because the more automaticity you have in all your fundamental skills, you have more confidence. So I see confidence as being neurological. So that does give you an extra strength. But it would be wrong for me to suggest that we actually are curing in any sense the underlying condition. Oh, that makes total sense. And I appreciate your modesty and honesty with that because you're talking about two different areas of the brain. Completely, yeah. Um, I've noticed, you know, through 
mindfulness, meditation practices, kundalini yoga, et cetera. Mm. I would say primarily Vedic meditation mm. and all kinds of other meditation for years and years that I did before that. I'm like 22 years into various practices mm. of meditation because mm. I've needed a lot of it. Uh, but I've improved a lot in terms of reactivity and being triggered because of that gap of, of awareness, right? Yeah. So yeah. living more from a witness and observer sure. state where the the instinctive impulse or the amygdala firing from past trauma happens perhaps, but because there's a little gap of separation there, there's a time delay yeah, yeah. on being caught in it as you as you describe. Once one is has been so afflicted, you can get trapped there for hours. And every mm. once in a while that does happen to me. And I know I'm trapped. I know mm. I'm observing like, mm. wow, okay, right now I'm having an mm. adrenaline and a cortisol. Mm overdose and mm. i know that's what happening is happening but it doesn't make it hurt any less sure. and it doesn't make it stop it's like sometimes you just have to kind of ride it out and go okay well here we go mm. i'm fucked up i'm gonna have to just wait this one yeah. out and you know yeah. the more you resist and the more you try to fix it the tighter it, it grabs you but i have made a lot a lot of progress mm. well with, with emotional well-being and mm. the ability to not be so reactive just through you know years and years and years of meditation but it's been a really slow road you know just a little bit of progress at a time i've come light years from where i started but i'm still looking for the thing like who's gonna fix the goddamn amygdala how do you fix it so it doesn't do that anymore but i i really appreciate your your point of view that if we have more overall capacity even though you know the training that you've developed doesn't particularly address that part of the brain and that response yet. Okay, great. (laughs) Is that, listen, if we have more RAM, you know, more space available energetically and we have more control over just our, our basic fundamental function neurologically, that that's going to give us perhaps more of that gap. More buffer. Right. More buffer that some of us develop through spiritual practices and, you know, I'm sure different forms of therapy and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's... There is an extra thing it does. Okay. Because the more RAM you have, it's the area of RAM or the, the, the executive function, which is all the same sort of areas, the working memory and so on. That is where your impulsivity control happens or not. So the more capacity you've got there, the less that's going on, the less likely you are to trigger some impulsive response, which can often be the trigger for an amygdala reaction. So, you know, we observe dramatic reduction in impulsivity in those that do and have done our program because that increase in cognitive space in RAM seems to dramatically increase their ability to avoid being impulsive. It also, cool. it also and we, we need to do a lot more research on this, but we're getting a lot of a um, lot of evidence of it improving OCD, which is the same thing. So you end up with far greater control and much greater calmness. So that's a better platform on which to cope with underlying amygdala-related issues. So you're seeing good results with anxiety and we obsessive-compulsive are. behavior. Well, absolutely. And, and I'm assuming then sort of the converse of anxiety, depression, of being kind of understimulated versus overstimulated. Uh, absolutely. But there is some good news we haven't touched on yet. Oh, good. I mean, there's a lot of good news so far. This is exciting stuff. <laughs> no, but there's good like news. some great research. Have you not noticed that those that have substantial trauma in childhood often end up with a degree of genius that's remarkable? It's almost as if the pressure of childhood, that, 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 that pressure cooker of, of fear and pain they go through, ends up with them 
looking for solutions where others don't look. So they're kind of hardwired to look for connections, look for solutions, look for links. And to me, it often shows itself in a degree of genius that's quite remarkable. There's often all sorts of other PTSD things which are real downsides, but let's, let's focus on the fact that genius often exists in those that have gone through huge pain and trauma. I would say absolutely so. And also the fact that those of us that have gone through a considerable amount of pain and discomfort and suffering in our lives are also, if you make it through it, are typically driven toward evolving and raising yeah. your consciousness by any means necessary yeah. because you, you you see that you need to become tethered and connected to something yeah. greater than yourself in yeah, order yeah, not exactly. only to survive at first, but then later to thrive as it becomes a way of life and as you become more fulfilled through a spiritual pursuit, et cetera, mm. expanding and raising your consciousness. Now, you are a fan and see huge benefit of meditation. One of the things that happens when you develop the cerebellum is that by freeing up working memory space, you're getting yourself much closer to a meditative state. So meditation and maintaining depth in meditation becomes easier. Nice. One thing you've talked about is how brain development can make you a better lover. And actually, you know, I want to, we got to touch on sex and then, and then, you know, as we come okay. to a close, people are probably going, okay, okay, we get it. This sounds awesome. What is it? How does it, you know, how does it work? So I, I want to really make sure and cover that, but I, you know, cause I love sex. Um, and that not just the sex, but the connection with sure, another person sure. that you love at this stage in life, although it wasn't always um, that deep. Um, how can this teach us to, you know, read our partner's energy and body language and, um, you know, relate to someone intimately in a more meaningful way? Well, if you've got more cognitive capacity, you've got more awareness. But it's far deeper than that. The connection between, you know, we're two guys, so we can talk, talk about the limitations that guys have perhaps more easily than limitations that, that girls have. But as guys, very often... When we, when we do things like touch, we find it hard to touch in a gentle, very sensitive way. Now, the more developed your cerebellum is, the more sensory inputs you're going to be getting through your fingertips. So when you touch, it multiplies, it amplifies the feelings you get. And women love that. They absolutely <laughs> yeah, love no that. So, so they're very practical sensory integration things that developing the cerebellum makes a huge, huge difference too. So the ability to empathize is a function of how much capacity you've got, how much are you reading. So, you know, those who've got significant um, interpersonal skill, you know, it's often the, the, the symptoms of, say, Asperger's, where folk find it really difficult to read someone else. They are skills. We're probably all on the spectrum somewhere. So if we can take ourselves further along the more highly developed part of the spectrum, we are going to become much more sensitive. But there's one more area that I've got to touch on. Many guys struggle with maintaining rhythm when they're having sex. Lack of automaticity in the very process of, of maintaining rhythm. It's not automatic to them. What do you mean by rhythm? Well, when you're actually physically having sex, if you want to... To, to, to maintain a good rhythm during the sex act. And that's really important, especially for, for, for the female. She wants to make sure she's thoroughly stimulated for a good period of time. If there's lack of automaticity in the coordination of your movements, 
you're going to be in mental overload trying to maintain that rhythm because it isn't natural and automatic. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And right. whenever you, you, you're going to come far too quickly. So whenever you're having to think very deeply about what you are doing, you're going to go into overload and you're going to come far too, far too soon. So the more wow. automaticity you can have in, in coordination, in touch, creating working memory space that gives you more capacity to empathize, you're going to be one heck of a better lover. Wow, damn. And here goes every woman listening to this going, how do I order this <laughs> for, my, for my man? <laughs> well, it, we have a lovely situation. If, when I mention that to guys, and I don't mention it that often, but when I yeah. do, they always want the program for some other reason. They don't mention I want to be a better lover. Yeah. Of course, their wives do. They want them to be a better lover, but the guys yeah. want it for concentration or they want to play soccer better or whatever sport, golf, whatever it is, they want a better, lower handicap. And of course, the better the automaticity you have, the more consistent your sport is going to be as well. So whatever your reason, call it whatever reason you like. But most men deep down, they want to be better lovers. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's one of the most rich experiences you can have Absolutely. in life. And the better you are at it, um, the more of a rich experience it's and going the, to and be. And the more automatic you are in all of your physical and sensual movements and experiences, the more you can stay conscious, the more me mental capacity you have to be present with your partner. Right. And that that is so thrilling. And so I see the possibility of far greater intimacy being experienced the more mental capacity you have. And the cerebellum, believe it or not, is directly related to that. Fantastic. And I've also heard you talk about how porn hardwires poor skills in bed out. And I'm, you know, I'm a, absolutely a proponent of living a porn-free life at this point. But I don't know exactly how it relates to that. How, how does porn ruin your sex life or make you a poor lover as related to brain function? Well, our sensory integration, which is what the cerebellum does, is responding to whatever regular stimuli I've got. When you're watching porn, you're not touching anyone. You've got no somatosensory feelings. You might be hearing some sound. You might be seeing something visual, but you've got no touch going on. You've got no taste. So only some of your senses are being stimulated. So if you're being stimulated by some, something the other side of a screen and only some of your senses, you'll end up reacting to just those senses. So when you're with a real partner, suddenly all of your senses are going to be alive and stimulated and you're not going to be able to last more than a few seconds. So your, your performance, you're going to be so overloaded with sensory stimulation because your brain isn't used to it. You've hardwired your brain. And it's particularly serious for, for teenagers and so on. When they're getting, you know, when they're getting used to having a sexual feelings and so on, if they hardwire their feelings using porn, they're going to be terrible lovers. It makes sense. It is the part of your analysis there to me is a bit counterintuitive, and I think antithetical to my own life experience in some ways. It's so what I found when I was um, earlier in life, which wasn't that long ago, and was. <laughs> very active with pornography. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, it's not like sitting around all day, but it was kind of a thing you do. I think mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of men just, it's especially with the availability of it mm -hmm. um, in the, you know, internet age. Um, I found that um, with regular use of pornography, I think because of the unnatural overstimulation and the endless variety mm -hmm. 
of visual stimulation and God knows what's happening in the brain on a chemical level of just mm. dopamine surges. And mm. as John Gray explained to me once, the even just the act of having sex with yourself without another person, but specifically with the artificial stimulation mm. is that you're, you're having this complete abnormal and unnatural cascade of hormones That's and right. neurotransmitters. So you're, yeah. you have this huge burst of dopamine and testosterone but then you don't have the norepinephrine mm. to balance it. Mm. And also the oxytocin, oxytocin that yeah. would be present in a, in an actual real physical interaction yeah. with another person. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot to that, but I actually found that in relationships, um, it was much earlier in life when I think porn was a, a more regular thing. It's faded out gradually over the past 20 years or so to mm. now dwindling down to nothing, thankfully, but um, in longer term committed relationships, uh, I found that I, and I hope none of my former girlfriends are listening. Hey, no, it's fine if they were. It wasn't your fault that I became less interested and actually yeah. had a harder time engaging and being yeah. excited and climaxing and things like that. And it, it would happen relatively quickly and thus had a real aversion to monogamous relationships yeah. because it wasn't my brain, stimuli. Yeah, my brain was hardwired to like being hyper stimulated. So when I was 16 years old, just seeing a girl naked and you know mm. touching her boobies was like, you know, my head was going to explode. And then <laughs> moving into my twenties and thirties and with the, you know, proliferation of pornography, it's like real sex, which is one person tended to get kind of boring relatively fast, yeah. regardless of how much chemistry we had and how physically attractive they might've been. So, yeah. Um, well, but just because all of the stimuli is coming from the visual and a bit from the auditory. So you're, you're programmed for that completely. So it's really confusing to the brain to have all these other stimuli happening. And you tend to, unless you've got some new experience happening, your, your brain is completely confused. So I think it, it depends on what age you get into porn. But I'm, I'm certainly very frightened right now about young children getting access to porn before they have any sexual experience at all, because that's wiring them up in a really, really confused way. I'm a big yeah. fan of monogamy because to me the the sensory stimulation of real love and of intimacy growing becomes the most powerful powerful and wonderful thing and so what's happening visually actually becomes less important it's part it's part of it but the actual feeling of love and the response of love and that huge connection that can be developed that to me is the most powerful and most important sensory input i agree 100 mm. it's taken me a long time to arrive at that realization but absolutely 100 okay so as we begin to come to a close obviously drum roll please like let's let's get into how the training actually works so what's it called what do you do how long do you do it for do you need a coach is it something these are a lot of questions and i just want you to dive in and kind of just okay. give us the whole overview and then you know, if it's a six month training, you know, 10 minutes a day for a couple of times, as I kind of understand it. And at six months, do you just stop or can you, can you grow in your cerebellum sure. health and capacity if you did this indefinitely? Is it something that one could keep doing or is it, does it have kind of a, you know, diminishing returns at some point? So just kind of unpack the whole training okay. and then in summary of that, um, how does it become available to some of the listeners? Of course, it, every brain is different. So one size fits all just doesn't work. So what we've done is created an intelligent, an artificial intelligent program that assesses you and delivers the right exercises that you do. And it's typically twice a day for 10 minutes. 
And the typical time for someone with an average, uh, an average condition would be six months, twice a day, six months. We give full coaching every month along the way there so that you understand the assessments, you understand the progress, and we answer any queries. So it's a fully coached, fully individualized program. But there are some that need to go on longer than six months. If you've got a profound, a profound condition that's, uh, say, uh, on the spectrum, deeply on the spectrum, then often that can take a year or sometimes two years. So typically, six months is enough. Once you've kick-started your cerebellum, you're creating wiring, you're creating skills that you are using and practicing all the time, and it even, they tend to even get better. So that's the overall picture. If you're an elite athlete, we find most of the elite athletes, and they get amazing results, they actually want to carry on doing it because they're scared to stop. They want every last percent that they right. can possibly have automaticity, consistency, emotional control, lack of mental tiredness. They want all of those things all the time in every game because they're so competitive. And, and so you, you, can you carry on? Yeah, we do recommend folk carry on. They don't have to do it so often. Just keep you, do it three or four times a week to keep you at peak performance. If you, most athletes that do it, they want to do it every day whilst they're in there playing, whilst they're staying, whilst they're professional. And what does the actual practice look like? Are you are you looking at an app, a computer screen? Are you listening to stuff? What what is the, 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 the training? Look the like? assessments have you have to do on a tablet or a PC because you need a big screen. Okay. And we want precision, so we know exactly which stimulation to give you and which activities to prescribe. You can actually do them on your smartphone. It's really easy to do on your smartphone. We give you avatars. You know exactly what you've got to do. They're not cardio. No, they're not particularly hard work. They are mentally stressing because it's only mental stress to the cerebellum actually forces the brain to develop the new skills that you need. So we're creating plasticity. We're giving the stimulation that tells the brain where to develop the new neural pathways. And that process uh, happens automatically. And every day we're reviewing it and we're adjusting the sensory stimulation, adjusting the areas we're working on. So it's a, it's a process that takes several months. It's not as quick as a tablet. So if you're wanting an instant solution, it's not that. But if you want to invest in the rest of your life, finding the deep potential in your brain, I think it's a very sensible commitment. Yeah, 10 minutes a couple times a day. You know, it's funny, even <laughs> my first thought is like, ah, I don't have time for that. But then I look at my, I have like a usage report on Instagram, <laughs> you know, it tells you how long you've been. And it's like, I hit the 20 minute mark every day. I'm just like, oh, turn that off. I got a couple more hours to zone out on Instagram. It's really annoying. <laughs> Um, so that's, you know, I think that's totally doable, uh, for most people. I, you know what I find with this stuff? Cause I, people ask a lot about all the different practices and, yeah. and compliance is very, is very difficult for yeah. people, uh, to become committed and have the discipline to partake in something, even if it is 10 minutes twice a day. Um, but I think if those of you listening are honest with yourself, there's things that you can sacrifice yeah. that are probably less productive and less meaningful, which probably have to do with something else on your phone. So if you're going to be sitting there and <laughs> zoning out in your phone, we might as well do this. So um, I guess that's it, man. I think that's a really good overview. And thank you so much for your time and making it over here while I was in the UK. Because as we discussed, um, you know, through email, it's like, oh, it sounds like a great opportunity. It's something I really want to learn from you. But geez, man, I just hate doing the interviews on Skype. And Zoom and all that. So it was very fortuitous that we got to meet. Um, in closing, real quick, I'd like to ask you who three teachers or teachings have been uh, for you that have influenced your life that you might be able to direct our listeners to go check out. Well, 
I have my own brand of spirituality. I was actually brought up in a in a cult. I spent the first thirty years of my oh, life. Oh shit, we got to do another episode. <laughs> no, <laughs> we didn't even get into that. So, so my brand of spirituality is 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 kind of different. So I have a kind of very practical brand. I'm, I'm my belief is deep. I'm influenced by by people who give me an awful lot of science. So, for instance, the work of the work of John Gray. Every time I read one of his books, I go, I just go almost orgasmic with the excitement of so much information he gives me. So he's, he's to me, he's a, he's a hero. Oh man, Winford, uh, not to blow my, uh, toot my own horn here, but I did an interview with him a couple of days ago. He did to be my third time, but our first one in person. And we did about two and a half hours and we went through wow. his entire journey of, um, wow. of being the Maharishi's assistant. I can't assistant. wait to hear that. So all his whole spiritual path and all of the practices of meditation and all of these things that he's developed, we didn't even talk about relationships at all until the very end. And he started talking about really kind of sexual performance a bit, but it was the most fascinating conversation. We had the best time. And so we're kind of becoming buddies and he's, you know, he's been a huge influence on me in terms of just learning how to relate to yeah. the opposite sex in general in relationship yeah. or even yeah. in platonic relationships, just understanding the fundamental differences. So I'm really excited to share that episode with you since you're a fan. It's it's stuff I've never heard him talk about. And I, yeah. I intentionally kind of dug out some of his stuff and he's like, you're really, this is kind of boring. You really want to talk about us? I know. Like, keep going, man. <laughs> this is very cool. Cause that's not what people typically ask of him. They want to learn how to stay married happily or whatever. So anyway, John Gray, fully on board. He'd probably be one of my top three too. Who else you got? Well, I, I'm, because I'm so practical, uh, I actually like the 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 balanced focus of of um, people like Anthony Robbins. I can't listen to him for very long. I think the you know I think an awful lot of what he does, but to, to me he kind of puts it in everybody's lap. So I've got respect for for the fact that he brings to huge numbers of people that wouldn't otherwise access a degree of spirituality and as and a degree of self belief. So. Uh, I've got huge regard for what he does. And there's a third person you you may not know of, and his name is Brian Main. And he's he's based here in the UK, and he's got an amazing way of, of getting people to set goals that that take them on a totally different journey, of getting us out of the rut. And he's taught me an awful lot about spirituality, and if ever you get a chance to meet him, he's one amazing guy. So there's, there's the three. They're totally different, very diverse but they've probably between them had more influence on me than anyone else. Cool. Awesome, man. Thank you for that. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Tony Robbins. I've done a bunch of his events and it's, it's been very transformative. I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, and so we can find Zing performance at zingperformance.com slash AF slash Luke ST. So you've given me that link. We'll of course put it in the show notes and all that stuff. And I'm sure I'll announce it in the intro and the outro and things like that. Is, are there any other links or social media or anything you want to point people to? Or is that website a good place to go? Website's a good place to go. If folk want to watch me on, uh, on, on, on I, I do a lot of very practical things on on um, Instagram and on Facebook. If they look at my uh, public figure page from Facebook, they'll find I do lots of stuff on different topics uh, and answer answer everyone's questions every Great. week. And what, what's your Instagram handle? I don't know. Okay, I'll figure it out. We'll put it in the notes. I'll figure out. I'll figure it out. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll do that for you. 
Okay, Winford Door, D-O-R-E. It probably has something to do with that. All right, well, thank you so much, man, for, for joining me today. Thank you, Luke, I very like, much for what you're doing. Yeah, really I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. Well, that was a fantastic conversation. I feel so grateful to have a life where I get to meet fantastic, bright, kind people like Winford and his wife, Ninka. And I've got to say, I'm a big fan of this Zing performance thing he came up with. I mean, that's another reason I just feel so lucky and grateful that I get to try out so many of these cutting edge technologies. And since I recently found out that my cerebellum is basically a dead piece of soggy butter in the back of my skull, uh, I'm real keen on using (laughs) Winfer's technology to turn that thing back on. So right before I did this recording, I actually did a 10 minute Zing session and it really woke me up. It got my brain going and I'm super excited. So I'm going to be doing this. I'm committing to myself. Now, I don't like to make promises that I can't keep even to myself because then it tells your subconscious mind that you're full of shit and I don't want my mind to think that about itself. But I'm going to give my best effort to do a couple Zing sessions per day. It takes about 10 minutes. Um, I can do them on my phone or on any one of my computers. And I think what I'm going to do is just set an alarm a couple times a day to be like, Luke, time to Zing. Because if I'm honest with myself, sometimes if my phone's sitting near me, which of course it normally is, it's so easy for me to just pick up Twitter or Instagram or one of these useless, well, mostly useless social media apps and just get fall into a complete black hole for, I don't even want to tell you how long. Sometimes it's really long time and I'm getting nothing done. And I realized I could be spending that time bringing my cerebellum back online and thus helping my brain health in general. So if you guys want to check it out too, as I said in the intro, you can save 200 bucks off the Zing Performance program by going to lukestory.zingperformance.com. That's lukestory.zingperformance.com. And you're going to get 200 bucks right on the landing page there. All right, let's thank our official sponsors. And I'm going to start off with one of our new ones, and that's a company called Lambs. And I get excited about all of our sponsors, but Lambs, y'all are saving my life here and probably saving the life of my future children. You know, I'm talking about the radiation-proof, EMF-proof briefs that uh, you can get at getlambs.com. You can also save, check this out, 20% off right now through the end of 2019 until New Year's Eve, December 31st. You can save 20%, which is a massive discount at getlambs.com using the code LIFESTYLIST. Now, the reason I love lambs is because they're tested to be effective. And what they're effective at doing is blocking any and all radiation that's hitting your midsection where your reproductive organs are. And at the time of this recording, I looked on their site and they don't have their women's versions of the briefs, which I guess will just be a little sexier looking, Uh, but they do have men's ones and small. So if you're a female that isn't going to have a date tonight where you need sexy lingerie or something like that, you could just get, you know, smaller lambs. Um, And for guys, you're good to go 100%. But I literally just chucked all my other whatever underwear I had um, well, actually, <laughs> I didn't throw them away because I thought it was so wasteful because I just bought... I buy like 20 pairs of underwear because I don't want to be stuck having to do laundry every three days or something, you know, and for travel and all that stuff. So I have a crap load of, um, no pun intended, of getlambs.com briefs. I think I have... 
I don't know, 12, 14 pairs or something to ensure that I never run out. And the crazy thing about them is you'd think they'd be made of tinfoil and be really uncomfortable, but they're not. They're crazy soft and which is weird because they have their sort of metallic thread on the inside, which basically makes a Faraday cage for your nads. And um, if you want to have kids, if you want to have testosterone in your body, if you want your hormones to work right and all of that, uh, it's really important to not be irradiating that part of your body. I think your brain, which they also sell a beanie, by the way, speaking of brains, uh, your brain and your reproductive organs, I think would be the number one place you want to shield from radiation, especially with 5G rolling out and all this nasty stuff. So I'm super stoked to bring these guys on. I really want you guys to support them uh, because two reasons. A, because I think they're an awesome company and also because the world needs more EMF aware products on the market. And if these guys can make it and expand and scale and come up with new products, um, the world's going to be a better place. So again, go to getlambs.com. Until the 31st of December 2019, you can save 20% off by using the code THELIFESTYLIST. But just wait, if you're hearing this after January 1st, 2020, you can use the Lifestylist and still save 10%. So it's a good deal. Our uh, next sponsors that I want to thank and encourage you to support would be Raw Optics. You can go to rawoptics.com. The code there is Lifestylist, and that gives you 10% off their super stylish blue blocking eyewear. That's Raw Optics, R-A Optics, not raw like raw food. And then we've got Candor at choosecandor.com. Something that you can do over at choosecandor.com, in addition to saving 10% with the code Lifestylist, is take their free caffeine quiz. You can find that at choosecandor.com slash caffeine dash type dash quiz. You're never going to remember that shit. So just perhaps Google uh, Candor caffeine quiz. It's really interesting because if you take their quiz, you get to see uh, based on a series of questions that you answer how you metabolize caffeine. And you might just find that you're a better matcha person than you are a coffee person. A lot of people think they can't do caffeine, but it's just that you can't do the type of caffeine and the quantity of caffeine in coffee without going nuts. However, I'm, I, I would venture to guess that almost anyone can feel really good on the Choose Candor Nootropic Matcha, which is a really delicious matcha nootropic drink that's got coconut cream and theanine and all this awesome stuff in there. It's, like a, it's a great nootropic. It's mild and it's a good like midday pick-me-up. So go to choosecandor.com stuff is lit. And just like everything I get to plug on this show, I use all this stuff. I love it all. I got raw optics glasses out the yin yang, got my lambs underwear I'm wearing every single day exclusively, no matter what, no matter what I'm doing. Uh, and for you guys, if, if you happen to care, the lambs underwear, like look totally normal and cool. They're not, they're not like some funky ass, <laughs> like boxer briefs, or I don't know what, I don't know what underwear is supposed to look like on a guy, but um, if you're, <laughs> If you care how you look, uh, they look quite normal and they come in a couple different colors. I have the black ones because, you know, it's rock and roll, uh, even in the underwear department, I guess. So do yourselves a favor, support our sponsors. These companies are great, man, and they help me do my work. Um, we've got some a new video format I'm rolling out in 2020. I've got some more cameras. We're doing different angles. It's, it's getting legit up in here. And that is all made possible by you guys going, you know what? I'm going to listen to Luke. I'm going to trust his recommendations and I'm going to get me some lambs underwear, some 
raw optics glasses and I'm going to wake myself up midday or even in the morning with some uh, candor drinks, etc. So thank you so much. And just know you can always find all of the sponsors at lukestory.com forward slash store. That's lukestory.com forward slash store. This Friday, I've got a Q&A solo show about cancer cures, a 5G EMF update, and an extensive report on my next career moves moving into 2020, including some changes for this here podcast. On Tuesday, we've got a fantastic show. I mean, this is going to be like a great way to move out of 2019. We've got Red Pilled, Breaking Free from the Matrix with Carrie Ann Moss, who's just a fantastically brilliant woman. I was so grateful to get down and uh, have her over to the house and have a conversation with her. Uh, You might know her from the Matrix films, hence my clever little title there. But um, beyond that, she's just an amazing, spiritually centered, gifted woman and a great mom and just like one of the coolest people I've ever met that's kind of working in Hollywood and somehow um, not a weirdo. (laughs) No offense to my actor friends, but you know what I mean? Hollywood is a weird place. Let's admit it. Any of you that have worked in the industry know it's strange. And she's not strange. She's awesome and normal in the best way. And I've got some events coming up in 2020. There are ways out, but I might as well plug them in case you're planning travel. The first one is Paleo FX, April 24th through 26th in Austin, Texas. I happen to know uh, a friend of mine by the name of Daniel Vitalis is going to be there, you guys. He hasn't made an appearance in a while, so I'm excited to go hang out with him and all my friends in Austin. Hit up the Barton Springs Pool, which is my just absolute tradition there. And it's a great event. I recently interviewed the founders, Keith and Michelle, if you happen to catch that. So if you want to come meet me and people like me and other listeners of the show, Paleo FX is definitely one of the worldwide destinations to do so. Then I'll be speaking in LA at Meet Delic, and uh, that's a psychedelic symposium of sorts with many experts on plant medicines and the clinical use of psychedelics uh, from all over the world, and that's May 2nd and 3rd, 2020. That's called Meet Delic. You can get tickets and information about my events at lukestory.com forward slash events. That's all I've got for you today, friends. Thank you so much for joining me. Don't forget to check out Zing Performance at lukestory.zingperformance.com. It's a very cool technology. And if you feel like your brain's a little sleepy, this might just be the technology to wake it up.